Direct from the astronomy capital of Australia comes the Astro Podcast. An irregular series of interviews with interesting astro people about the projects and passions that keep their eyes to the sky. This week's podcast is brought to you by itelescope.net. itelescope.net is the world's premier telescope on demand service. Hop onto their website, sign up for a free account, use the special code ASTRO at the check-in and you will get a 25% bonus on any of your credits or renewal of your accounts. Don't forget, use the term ASTRO when you sign up. And now on to the podcast. This week's Astro Podcast crosses into the world of particle physics. Of course, particle physics and uh, cosmology and astronomy now are holding hands, as it were, as they search for answers to things like dark matter, uh, antimatter, and the Higgs boson. Uh, Bill Gay takes us through what it's like to work at CERN and her history and... Right at the end is her prediction whether she thinks dark matter exists or not. Also, what uh, what she advises to do about the Higgs boson. Hi, Alison here from Astro Podcast, and I'm here with a very special guest today, and that's Bill Gay from Metu, um, who, uh, that's in Ankara, in Turkey, and she's a particle physicist, and uh, it, that's all correct, isn't it? I haven't made a mistake there, have I, Bill Gay? <laughs> all, right. all right, so give us a quick overview of, of what you do um, and where you do it, please. All right, so I am employed as an associate professor uh, at the Middle East Technical University, or short uh, METU in Ankara in Turkey. And I do my research at CERN uh, in Switzerland, in Geneva. Uh, so I spend about uh, half of my life in Geneva and the other half in Ankara where I teach and I also do research here. So my life has really two, two sides to it. One of is teaching and the other one is research. And that's quite common for people working at CERN. Great. Um, and so people don't think it's really strange that I'm, I'm getting <laughs> getting just some strange scientist. Um, can you give just a quick overview of uh, how your work links into astronomy and then we'll go into your past history? Well, um, it is very clear uh, that the largest answers that we're trying to answer at CERN, uh, the largest questions we're trying to answer at CERN, are actually related to astronomy. Um, if, if you look at the questions that CERN is trying to answer, well, the first one is what is mass? Uh, meaning how did particles, how did uh, matter acquire mass in the universe? And that is something that goes back to the Big Bang when the universe was very hot and dense. And then as the universe cooled, uh, maybe in the very, very, very beginning, particles didn't have mass, but then if there was an epoch when they acquired mass. And we now think that's the Higgs uh, mechanism, uh, that there was a Higgs field which uh, broke a certain symmetry in the universe as the universe cooled down and particles got mass through it. And hopefully by the end of this year, 2012, we will be able to give you the answer whether the Higgs particle exists or not. 
actually, statistically, uh, we have found it 90, with 95% confidence level, but that's, you know, that leaves us 5% of unknowns, and that's, for us, very big. Oh, uh, ab- we, absolutely. We only say we've found something when it gets to 99.99999 or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So, um Well, that's question number one. It is a bit related to astronomy, but the next question, if any, is what is dark matter? And that is directly tied in with cosmology and astronomy. Uh, Our astronomical observations, cosmological observations tell us that there is this magical stuff out there that is holding galaxies together. Without it, we'd probably be flying out and apart. Um, And clearly, um, it must have some particle nature. And at CERN, we're trying to figure it out through these collisions uh, banging two protons head-on at extremely high energies and hoping some of that stuff disappears unseen through our detectors and we will be able to see that through as missing matter or missing energy in our detectors and then we can actually understand dark matter by not seeing it um, and, and, and figuring out and we can actually measure its properties too um, so well, those two questions, and then there's, of course, this thing. And, and the great thing about dark matter is that there are many theories about it. Uh, there's this beautiful theory called supersymmetry. Uh, there are other theories in which there are extra dimensions and very exotic theories. And so we can test out these theories of dark matter, uh, which I find very exciting. And then also um, at the Large Hadron Collider, of course, so this, whole, this whole thing. And then there's this mysterious thing called dark energy. Well, we can't test that at CERN, really. Uh, unless maybe, who knows? I mean, maybe some unexpected surprise comes out of these collisions and we will figure out from there. So I think we are seeing at CERN um, that we're we're trying to answer these fundamental questions that come from cosmology and astronomy. So yes, we have to be very aware of what's happening in this other field as particle physicists. And I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk about uh, a very young Bill Gay how you got into hardcore physics, basically being, I'll, I'll call you that. Um, so <laughs> at, uh, at high school or were you one of the ones that was good at mathematics and interested in physics or did something else happen to get you to, you know, fall into that area? Well, initially, I mean, when I was very young, I wanted to be one of three things. I either, I mean, when I'm really young, yeah, this is this is when I was really tiny and small, and I, 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 I wanted to be either a um, brain surgeon, because I thought brain surgeons, they get into the brain and figure out how it works. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not true, is it? Or I wanted, to be an, uh, I wanted to be an astronaut, because I thought, again, you know, astronauts go up there and understand space, and what's inside this space, what is emptiness? And again, that's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the third thing is, I thought I wanted to become a mathematician, because I wanted to find the large number oh <laughs> well again. Um, but so these are really childhood dreams um so i feel like I'm, I'm i'm actually um heading towards that uh i learned that you know who figures out the brain isn't um a brain surgeon but a neurologist yep. and who understands space is scientists uh not really uh astronauts um but i was really discouraged um through um, middle school, especially um, as a female, I think sometimes there's this. I mean, there's no one to look up to, and Marie Curie is such an outdated figure uh, that I I really can't put myself in the shoes of. Um, so there's no one I think um, 
as a female that you can hang on to and say, well, look, she's done a great job um, as I was growing up. Uh, now I think there are more such um, figures in science, uh, but at the time there weren't. And it was, you know, when, when your colleagues, when, when your um, high school mates or middle school mates uh, make fun of you and say, oh, you come on, you're not going to become a scientist. There are no female scientists uh, <laughs> or they have heard of, surely. Yeah. Uh, it's really hard to give them a, you know, answer, but, um, so I was, I was, I was, um, tempting towards going to become a mathematician, which is, you know, uh, less hands-on and mm. somehow more acceptable. I mean, I mean, somehow if I told people that I want to become a mathematician, it wasn't as bad as telling them I wanted to become an experimental physicist or something like that. <laughs> and, um, um, there was this European math competition. Uh, it's called the ECIS, European Council of International Schools, holds a mathematics competition every year. And my high school was a member of that. Um, mm -hmm. So, and that year, the competition happened to be in Geneva. And um, I had developed a distaste for physics at the same time because, you know, I mean, I hate optics. I still do. Um, <laughs> I'm going through all this really... Um, optical formulas, which to me doesn't didn't make a lot of sense, and I really didn't like physics. And after the competition, they told us, "Oh, we're going to take you to this laboratory, and it's called CERN." And I hadn't heard about heard about it yet. I was fourteen. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had heard about it, but only remotely, and I didn't I didn't really feel like going and physics seeing a physics lab. Um, but. They convinced me that I had to come. <laughs> <laughs> so here I was, 14, and visiting CERN, and I was completely surprised. I did not expect that these people were looking at fundamental questions about um, nature. There, we had a guy who explained us the cosmic microwave background, and I was like, wow, you can actually hear the echo of the Big Bang. That is so cool. And uh, they told us how... They were trying to find, they had just found the W and Z particles. And I was like, wow, that is so cool. You actually understand radioactivity. I was, I was, I, that day I decided, I think I decided that day. Um, I think decide, deciding isn't the, you know, is the right word. Um, yep. That I wanted to become a physicist and work at CERN. Right. So I was thinking when that happened. Um, yeah, so that's, that's how it started. And then um, I, I, I saw that what we were doing in class, I mean, optics especially, and other things, um, really were remote. Um, there, were, there were things from the 16th and 17th centuries, and necessary, yes, of course, ultimately, uh, to do what we do. Mm. Um, as we need optics to build large telescopes. <laughs> true, <And> true. <laughs> you need to understand... Um, all these, uh, we need to understand Newton's laws to later understand why why quantum mechanics is special. But I, I was hooked, and um, so when when I want when I decided when I was making the decision to um, write to universities, apply to universities, um, I wrote that I wanted to become a physicist like the ones at CERN. Actually, that was my application letter. Right. And yeah, uh, so I went to MIT. I. Um, I was going to say, did you find, I mean, you talked about being teased, but did you find that being a female was any kind of a uh, hindrance or is it just um, unusual? 
in in the world of science? Um, well, let's talk about CERN, for example. Yeah. Um, only twelve percent of CERN is female, so that says something. Right, yeah. To me, there's clearly a problem somewhere. I'm not a sociologist. I think it's something for sociologists to explore. But I, from my own personal experience, I can say that there has been many uh, deterrents, really, along the way. Well, from from my own personal experience, I have definitely been discouraged along the way, not by my parents, mm. but uh, while at university, at, at at MIT, I found that it wasn't the professors or anybody who really gave me trouble, but my other students, they said, well, come on, I mean, you're not going to be able to, you know, if you go to CERN, you're not going to be able to be these long night shifts, are you? And things like this, where I was like, "Yeah, I will. Why not? I'm not. I'm hardcore enough. I think. I think if, you, if you're if you're if you're interested and you want to do something, why why wouldn't you be able to do it? You know. I, I mean, a lot of the historical figures. I mean, let's not look at the historical figures. Let's look at the Harvard's president. Right. About ten years ago, Harvard's president said that um, he thinks that females do not have the innate capability to do mathematics and sciences. So there is, it's pretty clear that there is this, there is still this view, and he, of course he, there was this huge backlash against him. But I think now people maybe who think that are not able to voice their opinion. Maybe it's even worse, right? Yeah. I, yeah. Also, the quotas don't do us any good, you know, oh. because when I got accepted after MIT, I applied to four schools, uh, only four schools, because I thought I, I, I had a very clear opinion on what I wanted to do. Yep. And I got into all four. And, you know, they're pretty good universities. There were MIT, Caltech, Harvard, and Stanford. And, you know, the reaction I got from my other students were like, oh, you got in just because there's a quota for female students. Like, oh. no. So I think these um, quotas don't help. No. I always feel that um, it does more, it, it does damage more than good. Because then they, then people can apply, you were judged at a lower standard than what should have been. So I don't think that's that's really good. Absolutely. I agree with you entirely on that. It, it, it sets an impression that is totally untrue. And there, until women are seen to be working on an equal platform, on all platforms, without the, the quotas and the, uh, you know, the, the helping hands that they supposedly get. Anyway, let's, let's move on to the science and talk about your connection with the the ISS how's that we'll start up with that one right so when I was when I was at uh, when I was finishing up my undergraduate degree at MIT I got involved in this project it's called AMS uh, the alpha magnetic spectrometer and it's a beautiful instrument uh, that went to space finally last year in 2011 uh, in May um, that looks for uh, cosmic rays that are coming from the universe and it has a it has a energy span up to TeVs, tera electron volts, which is the same energy span as the Large Hadron Collider, uh, which means that the AMS is sensitive to the same uh, physics that is the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, is sensitive to. Uh, so it has a chance. AMS has a chance to find. Uh, dark matter in space. It has a chance to find uh, uh, evidence of uh, a hint of uh, dark matter uh, in in space, antimatter and dark matter in space, which I find it uh, 
exciting. And it's a particle detector. So very similar to the detectors at CERN at the Large Hadron Collider again. But uh, instead of putting it underground, you put it up in space. Uh, it, went, it went, as I said, to the International Space Station last year. Uh, it's a pretty big, it's a, it was a pretty... Okay, so can you just uh, quickly run down how it actually detects those? I know you're saying it's the same as um, the LHC, but just so people will understand how that works. Right. So AMS uh, is a large uh, experiment. Uh, it is the largest scientific uh, experiment, actually, on the International Space Station. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a collaboration of many countries and many scientists around the world. Uh, it's seven and a half tons, so it's rather large. And uh, 16 countries, 60 institutes, uh, 500 physicists from all around the world came around to build this thing. Uh, It was assembled mostly at CERN, uh, but with contributions from mostly from Europe. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, NASA sent it up uh, last year, as I said. And what it does is it uh, has a large magnetic field, uh, which enables it to bend particles uh, if it's a negatively charged particle, it bends one way. If it's a positively charged, charged particle, it bends the other way, which means it can do charge separation. And that is very important if you want to look for cosmic rays, especially for antimatter. For example, proton bends one way, while antiproton bends the other way. Um, same thing with helium. Helium bends one way, anti-helium bends the other way. And anti-helium uh, is very special because it, it's not an element that can be made in the sun. Uh, for example, say we find it, found an anti-carbon atom, uh, an anti-carbon nucleus. Say we found an anti-carbon nucleus. Uh, that would be very exciting because that is something that can really only be made in an anti-star. And an anti-star, you're probably only going to find in an anti-galaxy. Um, and it's not ruled out that there is some very far out anti-galaxies out there. It's generally not favored, but it is still a possibility. So it could it could discover something like that. Uh, also, um, well, we're looking for dark matter. Uh, I think that's that's that is the biggest uh, mystery of our century. I sometimes call it a dark century because we, we don't <laughs> you know dark matter and dark dark energy. Well, if um, if there is dark matter out there, uh, there is a possibility that it might annihilate with itself. Yes, and if it does that, hmm. Oh, no, I was agreeing, yes. <laughs> that was one of the... And if, if it does that, uh, the collisions of dark matter will produce uh, particles that we know of already, and one of these will be positrons. Now, the great thing about positrons is that there is not a lot, lot of it out there, as there is not many much antimatter out there. And it might produce additional positrons in the cosmic ray spectrum, and we might we will be able to detect this. Uh, it will, it's actually one of the first measurements that AMS is planning to do. Uh, we have been collecting data now for about a year. Mm-hmm. Um, we've collected uh, 14 billion cosmic ray particles, which is wonderful. So we have a lot of data, and we are uh, now in the process of analyzing that data. But in, with, first uh, with the intention to calibrate our detectors. So first we have to understand our detectors very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to understand how they perform. And once that uh, we're done with that, we can uh, try to understand the cosmic ray spectrum. Right, right. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm amazed at, what, for, what was it, 40 million particles already? That's, that's a lot. <laughs> I thought it was a lot rarer than that, but it sounds like... Uh, 
Oh, sorry. Uh, we, we collect about uh, $16 billion per year. Wow. Oh, and so when do you think the first results will come out of that after the cal- calibration? So it, it's like at the moment it's all just raw data or? Oh, no. I mean, it's not. Well, what, what comes down is not exactly raw data, but it is a, it is. It is it, it, it's it's gone under compression and some sort of analysis up there already. Mm-hmm. But we have to understand the detectors first. Without understanding detectors, I mean, I think understanding a particle detector at some level is much more complicated than understanding a telescope because telescopes are optical. Right. Uh, whereas in this in AMS we have many different detectors. For example, we have a transition radiation tracker. Uh, we have a silicon tracker. We have a time of flight scintillation detector. Um, we have a colorimeter. Uh, we have a ring imaging Cherenkov counter. So we have very different technologies, uh, right. all uh, posing to understand and cross-check the type of the de- because we don't want to mix up particles. You don't want to see a proton and name it a positron. Right. Right. So we're looking at. We're not just looking at photons. We're looking and trying to distinguish these particles. So we have a lot of cross-checks to do. All right. Uh, so, so the, uh, And here comes one of my silly questions. So the, the uh, detectors themselves, they're designed and built to detect certain particles or are they just like giant vacuum cleaners that pick up everything and then you've got to figure out from what you've picked up what it is? All charged particles, I mean charged particles, Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they're designed to detect charged particles, which pass through them. And when the charged particle passes through some matter, it leaves behind it a telltale signal of uh, ionization electrons or of uh, excited uh, or of uh, photons that come from the excitation of the molecules that they pass through, or uh, light from the shock wave if it did go through faster than the speed of light in that medium. So that these are different effects we're aware of as particle physicists, and we can use it to build special detectors, and we can look for them separately. So, for example, there are detectors that specifically look at that ionization electrons. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the tracker. That's the silicon tracker. Uh, there is scintillators, and scintillators look uh, at the photons which get which are the product which are produced when the particle passes through and it excites these molecules and uh, the electrons jump into a higher level and then when they fall back down, they emit photons. Mm-hmm. And that's called a scintillation photon. So there are, so scintillator detectors look at those signals specifically. And then there is ring imaging Cherenkov counters and Cherenkov radiation is very special. Uh, it's the radiation which is produced when the particle passes through a medium but the velocity at which it passes through that medium is actually faster than the speed of light in that medium. So that's a lot by the laws of physics. Because <laughs> uh, light goes slower in medium, in certain medium, uh, in, in, in not in vacuum. And if it's not in vacuum, it goes slower than the speed of light. So if the particle pa- it, 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 um, goes faster than the speed of light in that medium, it makes a shock wave. Uh, similar to what the, what the airplanes make when they go faster than the speed of sound. Okay. That shock wave is produced, and we can actually detect that up, and that's the ring imaging Cherenkov counter. So we have the detectors that – so this is the thing. That's, that's why they're complementary, because you're measuring the particle through its different effects, and that's why it's so special. And then there's this other detector, which is really special, 
there's transition radiation, and transition radiation happens only when uh, the energy of a particle, the relativistic energy of a particle, exceeds its mass by more than a factor of 300 or 1,000. Now, that sounds crazy, but you remember E is equal to mc squared? Yeah. Uh, that's mass, that's the energy that's from the, that's coming from the mass, that's called inertial mass, mm-hmm. uh, but then there is this other, there's the, 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 but because it's so relativistic, it's going so close to the speed of light, if its total energy exceeds its mass by a factor of 300, then you get this special radiation, it's called transition radiation, and then there are, there's a detector that can detect that. So you see there is very different techniques of measuring particles. Sure, sure. And you you have to use all of them to make sure and to, uh, to that you have got the particles kind and energy right. Sure. So every so that's that's why we have to be cro- right now we're cross checking one detector against another and making sure they all match up and line up and uh, also alignment is a big issue. Alignment is very important for the tracker. You the particle bends in the magnetic field and you have to understand how it bends. And when, when that happens, alignment of the detectors are very important. So there's all this calibration and understanding the detector that's going on right now. And so what work are you currently doing uh, when you go to CERN these days? <laughs> we're looking at uh, photons. Yep. Uh, we're looking at uh, conversion photons. We've just started the work. I, I, I'm a new faculty member here in METU. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an exciting time because I'm building my group and I'm training my students uh, we are also we we the summer I will be at CERN with my students. Uh, two of my students will be will will also be uh, contributing to the running of the detector. Uh, we will be contributing to I mean operations of the detector. I mean we 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 constantly watch the data that's flowing through, but also we have to watch carefully um, things like the temperature of the detectors, uh, the pressures of certain uh, gases that are used in the detector. So we have this operation center at CERN. It's called PAC, and my students will be running shifts there. So there is just two. Well, there's two different projects. So I worked on AMS for four years when I was at MIT as an undergrad, and then later as a grad student. Um, and then I switched. Um, I, I helped build a detector, the transition radiation tracker. Um, but then I switched to the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, when I did, when I was at Oxford and then at CERN, and I worked on um, Atlas, the Atlas project, which is looking at these collisions, and I worked on on that for seven years. And after, when now that I have a faculty position, and now that AMS is in space, I decided to switch back to AMS. But I'm certainly very excited about the Large Hadron Collider and follow it uh, very closely. But my current research is on AMS. Ah, oh, right. Okay. Oh, that makes sense. Speaking about what excites you, what in the, and then not necessarily in um, the work that you're doing, but what sort of thing does excite you at the moment? I mean, we've had people talk about bird watching and, and all sorts of stuff. So, I mean, do you have interests outside of your work? Yes, yes, of course. I think it's impossible not to. Um, my, I'm, I'm very passionate about music um, and music is um, an integral part of my life. It takes up a lot of my time, actually. Um, I, I love uh, classical music. I love uh, jazz and uh, tango and very various kinds of music. And I, 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 I sing and I play the piano 
and uh, whenever I can, I also do a bit of tango dancing. But um, I, I do wish I could spend even more time um, <laughs> because I think there is such a there is a well I, I think like this we have this beautiful language it's called mathematics and it is the language that we employ to talk with nature. And then I also find that music is also a universal language, at least among the people here living on Earth. And possibly, who knows, maybe if there are aliens, maybe we could also talk to them through music. That's yet to be seen. But it, it seems to me that there is something so elegant about, I mean, just even how the musical scales are formed. Uh, that's the physics side of it again. But also about how we can express emotions and uh, various things in, in nature with it. I mean, even the birds sing with music and animals, they use tones. So I think there's something really fundamental and it appeals to me greatly. So I'm very, very um, passionate about music. And I, um, I talk to my students. Uh, we sometimes go to concerts. I take my uh, class out to concerts, uh, my, my physics classes out to concerts sometimes. Um, so I'm very passionate about that. Well, what else do I do? I, 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 love, uh, I love skiing mm -hmm. and I also love the wind. Any wind sport appeals to me. <laughs> <laughs> Anything where you can feel speed, I like. Well, mostly um, I love sailing and I like uh, skiing. Those are my favorite two these days. Yeah, I think it's very important that um, we break down this image of uh, scientists as, as, as someone who doesn't have a life outside of physics. I mean, yes, I would like to have more time to do these things. Um, but I, I, I managed. I think we generally sacrifice sleep. Yes, <laughs> that's right. That's the only spare time you have. Yeah. Rather than sacrificing something else, I generally sacrifice sleep if anything. Oh, dear. Well, I mean, a lot of the astronomers, they also do that. Um, just to wrap up, we had a – there was a program here on the weekend where uh, Dr. Fred Watson, who's from the uh, AAO here in Australia, he had done a – documentary on the well not a documentary did a short interview at the LHC which he recorded last European summer anyway he had five of the Australian students there who and he asked the question do you think that they will find the Higgs boson particle and three said no and two said yes so um what what do you think I know scientists are loath to to make predictions but uh are you <laughs> are you uh are you game to be able to say yes or no i think we're we're well i th i believe in patience <laughs> <laughs> I, think, i think it's time to be patient i think we're so close to the answer and we'll know by the end of the year so i think it's not a time for speculation i think the answer no is as exciting as the answer yes because the, the Higgs uh, theory has been around for a long time. It's been around for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And I'd rather suspend all my belief on this. I mean, just not answer the question at all and say, it's so close. I mean, we've got another, what, seven, eight months maximum yep. uh, to be able to answer the question. So I'd rather wait for that answer rather than speculating. It's true. Okay. Fair but, enough. But 
Sure, I'd like to speculate on dark. Oh, if, if okay. You are, I'll speculate on dark matter. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I because uh, I asked uh, someone else the other day, and they wouldn't speculate either, and I get very frustrated. It's like, come on, take a stab. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly, but Alison, I mean, seven, eight months is nothing, right? Yeah, true, especially in around science. <laughs> I can wait for that it's one. Nothing. I mean, people, I think that's something that scares people about science is the amount of patience you have to have. Mm. And, you know, I mean, come on. I mean, yes, if it was 10 years ago, 10 years from today, yeah, I could speculate. I mean, I have a bet that I placed about 10 years ago. I'm not going to tell you which side the bet went because <laughs> now it's so you're so close to it. There's no point in making a speculation about it. As for dark matter, I think we're still very far away from it. And I, I definitely, I mean, if, if somebody asked me, what would you like to see found uh, before the end of your life? And that would be dark matter. I, I, I think I really want to see dark matter uh, puzzle solved in my lifetime. So I'm going to say a yes. Yeah, I think the LHC will, will say something about dark matter. I'm really positive. I'm, I'm, really, I'm really hopeful about that. Let's oh. not say confident, but I'm hopeful. So I, I, want, to say, I want to say yes. Well, that's, that's <laughs> good. Yet, yeah. If you had to say something, you'd say yes. <laughs> that's right. Not just... Not just not just the Large Hadron Collider, but yeah. uh, AMS as well. I mean, I think I I think there's such a um, the public uh, needs a better understanding of science, and I think it's really wonderful you're doing this podcast. And what I think needs to be understood is that negative answers are just as important as positive answers. So if you don't find the Higgs, it is an amazing fa- it's an amazing find. Yes, absolutely. Uh, because. Because then we're really, really uh, have no clue how mass was generated in the universe. And we, ha- we will be listening more carefully, I think, to exciting and new theories about how it could be come about, coming about. Maybe, maybe somebody out there, yeah, maybe mm-hmm. somebody out there, some young theorist has got the right idea. But we haven't paid him attention because we have this beautiful theory of the Higgs and we don't need another theory about it, okay? Maybe yeah. there is some other... Uh, way that the master was generated and then we will be paying more attention to uh younger people uh and new ideas yes yeah so i think i think negative answers are just as exciting as positive answers and it's a very exciting time because uh we have so many unsolved questions um like neutrinos we've got we've got neutrinos which have mass but we don't know why they turn from one kind, one family, one kind to the other. Uh, we don't know of them. I mean, even the Higgs theory does not explain uh, cleanly, at least. Uh, the, the, the native Higgs theory does not explain cleanly how uh, mass is generated for the neutrinos. So maybe it is. I mean, some people say that. Maybe Higgs theory isn't the right, um, isn't the right theory about why mass is generated. So um, I think it's an exciting time, and I think it's a time for uh, great patience and great hopeful. I mean, I think everybody should be hopeful uh, about it. Even a negative answer about the Higgs uh, is exciting, but I do hope for a positive answer for dark matter. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time, Bill Gates. Uh, it's been wonderful. And um, yes, I know it sounds like I've been struggling, which I have a little bit, but um, I've I certainly really appreciate uh, your time and I'd love to talk to you an, again at another time in the future, maybe when the answer comes out or, sure. or whichever sure. way it goes. Um, <laughs> sure. so I'd love to do that. 
Yeah, thanks very much. Well, it was it was lovely talking to you, Alison. And keep it up. It's good work. <laughs> I think uh, it's wonderful that you're doing this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Astro Podcast. Why not leave a comment and rating on iTunes so other people can listen in too? If you want to nominate someone to be interviewed, then send an email to alison at astropodcast.com and she'll do her best to make it so.